Turn with me now to Exodus 33, beginning in verse 17. Exodus 33, 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Then he said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were, writ- that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you. Let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain." So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, Go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes we come to portions of Scripture that appear to us to be very dull, and our prayer is that you would enable us to see what is amazing in them. And this, Lord, we don't have that problem. We recognize, Lord, immediately um, the holy ground upon which we are standing, the high point of this great book of Exodus before us. And, um, Lord, the problem for us is simply to take it in. We pray that you'd give us the buckets, that you'd give us the categories, you'd give us some element of structure to receive some of these things that we might benefit as Moses did on that day, that we might truly learn something deep and powerful and true and, and something that will leave a long-standing impression about you as you speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we come. 
to this latter portion of Exodus 33 and also to the first part of Exodus 34. And just when we think that we've come to the bottom of Moses' audacity in prayer and in God's incredible patience and generosity with Moses and with the people, we see that there is more yet. Now, the context is a previous exchange in Exodus 33:15, which Moses is saying he's already gotten what he's asked for, more than once, actually. And then he said, if your presence does not go with us, then do not bring us up from here. Or how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. So we've already seen that Moses is in full flow here, in complete boldness mode, using his position as mediator to its fullest extent. And I might just ask if there is any, any kind of opening, any kind of invitation that has been granted you, by the Lord, and whether you are using that to the fullest extent or not. But Moses is doing that, and God again answers very favorably. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you've spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And at this point, surely Moses is going to be silent. Surely he has asked for enough. He has, he's, he's tested the boundaries of God's goodness and mercy. But no, he's not quite done. Moses goes for just a little bit more in verse 18, and he said, Please show me your glory. Now, on the one hand, we know that he doesn't get exactly that, and we're going to see why that is. No man can see my glory, he says, and live. But on the other hand, he does get what he, in essence, wanted. He does get... He gets to see, he gets to hear what is most truly glorious about God. And it's in essence what he has already seen and what he has just experienced. Precisely that. The Lord's sovereign grace and mercy to his chosen people. And that he has, he has seen that. He has experienced that. And now as he says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me what's so glorious about you. I really want to see it. That is what he receives. More of the same Mercy and goodness and grace that he's already been experiencing. That there is nothing else to be seen in God towards his covenant people than these things. That there is not another part of God, another aspect of God towards his people as he passes by us. Or rather comes alongside us and walks by us other than his enormous, immense patience and grace, and mercy to the chosen favorites of heaven. Moses has been experiencing that. And we see, because he just keeps asking, he just keeps getting. And no matter how crazy the request is, whether to, 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 to save a people that were already marked for destruction, the other to be wiped out, or to, to get a nice-to-have aspect of don't just send us back into the promised land, but come with us visibly so everybody can see that you're coming with us, Okay, I'll do that too. Or even now that he says, I want to see you. And so he gets even that much. Well, the title tonight is Moses Sees God. And uh, I, just to moderate your expectations, um, there's only so much that we can take in any single time. We recognize that there's so much here that we're not going to get everything that we might wish. But I hope that we get enough. Moses sees God, and there are four points Glory requested, goodness granted, God's name 
Moses' response. Got it? Glory requested, goodness granted. God's name, Moses' response. So first we see it is glory that is requested. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you've spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. What a beautiful uh, assurance. What a beautiful preface to to prayer. And I, I hope that those sorts of words, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, are ringing in your ears as you come before the Lord in prayer. That he says, you have found grace in my sight. I do know you by name, so ask what you want in my name. Verse 18, he said, please, okay, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now we have to ask, we have to evaluate, what sort of request is it? Show me your glory. I want to say, first of all, it is bold. All right, It is certainly bold. It is based on all the success that Moses has seen thus far in prayer. He is learning of God, and everything he says demonstrates and encourages him to keep on asking. And so he does. And that's good and right. We know that God says, you have not because you ask not. Or Matthew seven eleven. if you then, speaking of fathers giving to their own children, if you then know, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, right? That is a, a, a knowledge in some sense. You know how to do it. You're able. That's in your hand. That's in your inclination. You evil people, you know how to give good gifts to your own children. How much more, not, well, I'll be almost like that. If you being fathers, give to your own children. Now that's natural and understandable that you would want to give good gifts to your own children. Now I'm not, your relationship that you have with me is not quite like that. You're more like subjects. But even there, I, I often do that kind of thing. He said, no, no, much more do I who am the real father and you who are my real children, of which the earthly relationship is just a shadow, even much more so will I give to you. Moses knows this, and so Moses is opening up the throttles all the way to the limit and asking for whatever he wants at this point. And it's great. So it's bold. But we have to say it was a little bit more of a personal request and rather than for the people. Okay, so we've said that as intercessor, he was getting absolutely anything for these people. But one could at this point mention that this seems to be a bit personal. Now, our friend John L. Mackay says, argues that Moses wanted to learn as much as possible in order to better serve as meteor. So, God, tell me more about yourself so I can better function as the, the covenant mediator. Now, I suppose he's in a position to ask Moses now, and I'm sure he'll, he'll figure that out one way or another. But Moses himself doesn't give such a rationale. And the general tenor of it seems to be more in terms of personal interests at this point. Okay, so we have to say that. He was not asking for mercy. Let me say this. He was certainly not asking for mercy either for himself or for anyone else. And thus we know that the streak, any way we want to count it, certainly continues. Because it's not he's asking for mercy. He's asking for a favor. A great favor. And a personal favor. But on the other hand, we also have to say it is a God-centered favor. Right? It's, it's not the Rolls Royce. He's asking to see God. And is that really so wrong? No, no. The interest is in God himself. It's never a bad thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. And he was certainly in that category. He's seeking first God in this. And God wants us to do that. The idea of learning more about God and seeing more of him, that is never wrong. But on the other hand, and you see how we're going back and forth, it's a very complicated thing to understand this request. 
unbeknownst to, God, to Moses, is actually dangerous, right? That's what he's, he's asking for, something that if he got exactly what he, was, what he wanted, it would kill him, okay? Now, that's what brings us now to a question that I often get, uh, how are we supposed to pray, all right? Are we supposed to pray always, uh, always adding to everything, if it be your will, O Lord, if it be your will, O Lord? I want us to say that God's not stupid, Okay, and that if our heart is right before him and our general desire is for good things, we go to a good father asking for good things, then he will do that apart from the time that he knows that these are not good things. And we don't have to therefore preface every last thing with, if it be your will, O Lord. Because not that that's an evil thing nor a sinful thing, of course not. It just sometimes is a little bit contrary to the spirit of boldness that seems to please God. And we don't find a lot of examples of that in Scripture. Rather, we see examples like this. Moses boldly saying, uh, okay, one more time, show me your glory. And, and God saying, Moses, this would actually bring about your death. Tell you what, though, I won't give you that. I will give you the, the thing, the most maximum that you can possibly get of me and still be alive and, and that's what I know what you're asking for, and I will translate that into something that actually works for you. Okay? So I think we are safe asking for really bold prayers without qualifying everything with, if it be your will, O Lord, because God knows. And God knows our hearts. And he will make sure that we not get the things that will be destructive, certainly if that's our heart's desire. Well, that's what he's asked for. He's asked for, it for glory. He wants to see the glory. And we know that that's often the tendency of man is that we want to see the things that are outwardly impressive. And no doubt he himself, like we would in our minds, if you're asking what does it mean to see God's glory, we would surely have some sort of amazing visual display in our, in our minds. Um, but secondly, we see what's granted is goodness. Goodness granted. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. This is a substitution. It is goodness and the name of the Lord rather than glory, right? It's a substitution. But let me say, first of all, that notice that God doesn't chide Moses for reaching for that brass ring. He doesn't at all say, you've asked for too much this time, Moses. He's going to kill you. He doesn't, even, he doesn't begin that way. The first thing he does is to grant as much as he possibly can. And what a lesson for all of us. Right? We should never take... Uh, take delight in saying no. It should always be our desire to say as yes, as much as is possibly in our hands to do, we should want to say yes and grant and grant and grant. So he grants it. And then later he adds, by the way, this would kill you. But he doesn't chide Moses for reaching for that brass ring. And he grants what's good. He says, by the way, you know, in Romans 8.28, Gary has preached so ably on this, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And it wouldn't have been good for Moses to see God's glory in the direct sense that he wanted, but it was good, something else. And the fact that he asked for something that wasn't good was still used yet for his good, because God is good. Right? Now, again, the, the essence of this interaction is not of a request being denied, Right? It's not, no, Moses, come on. You're not getting that. It wasn't that. It was that the character of this is, is of a God granting some amazing privilege to someone just because he wants to grant it. 
Right? That's, that's the character of the answer that we should see. Yes, he asks specifically to see glory, and what he gets is goodness, but that's not something worse. That's something better. And, and God knew it. And Moses, by the end, will know it too. And it's all based on just because. Right? Um, some of you know, as I, we, we want to explain how it is that God loves us. Why is it that God loves you? And I say, well, God loves you because God loves you, just because. He just decides to love you. And friends, that is exactly his explanation here. Because it requires some kind of explanation as why God would grant such a favor to Moses. And he says, I tell you what, Moses, I will let you, all my goodness pass before you and I'm going to proclaim your name. I'm going to grant to you, admit you to a privilege that has never before been granted to anyone living and will not for a long time be granted to anyone else. Here it is. And he has to explain why it is, why Moses gets such, such a privilege, such treatment. The answer is, I will have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. And that's it. Just because God in his sovereignty is granting such a favor to a, a favorite of heaven. Now, we know that the world cannot stand this whole idea of the sovereign mercy of God. They can't stand this idea that God in his sovereignty decides who is saved and who is not. But friends, it is precisely in this, as we're going to see, precisely in this that God's goodness most consists. All right? Because it is not that we are getting justice from God. If we're getting justice from God, then that means we're all going to hell forever. Right? It is rather we are getting sovereign goodness from a king who has in his hand either to withhold or to, to grant. Has in his hand either to judge or ounce to make us his children forever and, and make us the, the bride of Christ. And it is entirely up to him as to what he grants to each person who ever lives. Now, if you're not a believer, that probably seems a hateful and horrible thing. If you know what a wicked sinner you are and what a wonderful Savior Christ is and you have experienced the undeserved mercy and grace of God, then it is a precious and wonderful truth to your heart. Now let me say this, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This just because statement is in, mentioned by Paul in Romans 9, in, in, precisely in the context of God's sovereignty. 9.15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And so I want to be really clear about this, because this is the truth about God. You want to know the real God when you're coming right to the center, right? So we've been, you, you can, uh, there's all kinds of truths about God. And here we are, we're getting really close to the center of God as he's revealing his essential character, his, his name and his goodness. You want to see it, Moses, and now, now God is in the process now of unveiling and showing the central core of himself. This is who he really is. We have a sovereign king, the one to whom we have to do with in heaven. He is a sovereign king, and when, he comes, when we come to him, he is at liberty to do whatever is within his holy character to do. He, he's at liberty. Right? That's why this whole section uh, doesn't have much to do with pure human logic. Right? This whole interaction that Moses has been having with God doesn't have to do 
with the strictures of human logic. It rather has to do with someone pleading before a sovereign and getting what he wants. And the reason why he's getting what he wants is because God in his sovereignty has decided to be favorable to this one Moses. Now, I want you to understand that there was an element of Moses' background that might have been useful for this office. Do you remember what Moses was as a young man? He was a prince. He, was, he grew up as a son of Moses' daughter, and therefore he saw the royal court in operation. And beloved, it was not a bureaucratic functionary situation. It was not going down to Gateshead Council to that you know, 1980s office complex to some bureaucratic functionary after another. Right? When you go to Pharaoh's court, you stand before a Pharaoh who has absolute power in his hand and can do whatever he wants to whomever he wants. And it's all about who has favor in the sight of Pharaoh. Moses figures out at some point, I found favor. Okay, I have the, I have the, the, the whatever it is. The, um, I don't know exactly how to say it in, in, in language that wouldn't detract from, from God's glory at this point. But I have the ability to ask for whatever I want to ask. And Moses had seen that in operation. Right? He knew what it was like for the Pharaoh, perhaps his grandfather at some point, I don't know, but, uh, or, or some other situation like that, or you know, not adoptive-wise in terms of Pharaoh's daughter uh, raising him, seeing that maybe he at some point was the recipient of some favor of this king. And so he asked for whatever he wants. The reason why he says yes is because Moses is, in fact, the one whom God has granted mercy to. He is a favorite of heaven. And friends, all I have to do to ask you is to say, are you in that category? I'll ask you again in the application section. But are you a favorite of heaven? And if so, are you living in accordance with the reality of that truth? But he goes on to say, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And I won't go into why this is the case. Just let's take that on faith. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. Now, let's just say, again, God was well within his right to this point to say, Moses, no. Okay, look, I've already given whatever you want, whatever you want and, and just enough. All right, that's, that's fine. We'll, we'll move on. You'll find out more about me soon enough. You, you know, you're, what, how old are you? You're going to be with me soon enough. You'll, you'll see everything. But he doesn't. He says, okay, all right. Well, let's figure out what we can do here, all right? Um, uh, you're going to die if that were to happen. But here's an idea. Here's a place by me, a place nearby, and you shall stand on this rock here. And it shall be when my glory passes by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by, then I'll take away my hand, and you'll see my back, but my face will not be seen. You, you get what we're saying here? He is going to great lengths in detail to figure out some sort of way to grant as much as he possibly can of Moses' wacky, crazy request. Because he's a good God, and he loves to bestow good gifts on his children. And, he, and, and Moses is a favorite of heaven. Okay, so if you ever, if Satan ever comes to you and somehow tries to insinuate that God is not good, you think about this incident, okay? Just think about it. Didn't have to do this in the slightest. Did it because of his immense generosity. Goes to great lengths on it. Now, is this anthropomorphic language? Of course it is. All right, does God, the Father, have a hand? No, he doesn't. Does he have a front and a back? No, all the rest of it. But many of his, in many of his appearances, as he condescends to us, 
He, he really appears very often as the second person of the Godhead. Uh, the God the Son is the one who appears before uh, Moses, and, and uh, these things would be seen. So it's um, an amazing provision that he grants his goodness. But actually, his goodness is already on display before it's ever happened, merely in the things that he's already said. Well, his goodness is granted. And thirdly, we see then God's uh, name in this. Now, in verse, we're going to move on to chapter 34 and verse 5. Now, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and what did he do? He proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, even today, uh, with a sovereign involved, there is a proclamation of the name. Right? So if Her Majesty goes into Parliament, her name is proclaimed. And sometimes it is very simple. In other, other situations, there may be more of her titles that are part of that proclamation, whatever is relevant to this situation. And let me just remind us then about the full sense of the word name, because yes, it includes a proper name, such as you and I have a proper name. Uh, and that begins with the covenant name of God, those four letters. Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. But it also means essential character traits. What is this? And there we might think of, uh, of nicknames maybe. Or maybe we think of, I don't know, in uh, the Native American Indians in, in America, they wait to name their child until they see some sort of essential trait uh, of, that they see in their child. And they say they, they name him the lone wolf or they name him the this or that, the, the big bear or something like that. And it, it sort of... Uh, has something to do with the way they really are. So what we're going to hear is, in short, the things that most epitomize the living God to whom we have to do with. All right, There are a lot of things that are true of you and I, but only a few things that will really make our essential name. And here it is. We're going to have what it is. Now, let me say in verse 6, the Lord passed by him, before him, and whatever there is that Moses saw has not been recorded and I'm not sure that it really would be much to our prophet, even it was. You know, there was a flash of light and some color or something like that. None of that's recorded. It wouldn't do us much good. Because remember, the nature of our religion, and Moses is forgetting that just for a moment, the nature of our religion, of course, has to do with words because it has to do with faith rather than it has to do with sight, you see. Now, God in his condescension actually did grant him a sight, um, and we're amazed by it. it. It wasn't necessary. He doesn't always do that. But the essence of what is being conveyed that's really of use to Moses and to all of his people has to do with the words and the proclamation of his name. And so he proclaims it. The Lord, the Lord God. There's L-O-R-D in big capital letters, a covenant name of God. We don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, the vowel, we know the consonants, as I mentioned, Y-H-W-H, but we don't really know the vowels. They've long been, been obscured, so we don't know what they are. But the first thing that explains is the essential character of the living God, his name, his covenant name that relates to his people, the one that is self-existent, that name. And the first thing that then further explains what that name is, is he is merciful. First thing out of his mouth. Moses, you want to know about me? Let me proclaim my name, my essential character before you. I am merciful. Friends, if nothing else in this exodus, we have seen mercy. What a, think about in the providence of God what we've seen of him that we'd not otherwise have a chance to. What if those people were better? What if they were better behaved? What if maybe there were English people instead of those Israelites? 
And they weren't quite so bold in their sin. And they were just, uh, maybe their, their sins were more subtle, the kind of things that happen in heart and words sometimes, maybe than making golden calves outwardly. Well, maybe, just maybe, we wouldn't have such occasion to see the incredible mercy of God because there's nothing that they could have done worse than to slap God in his face and spit in him by making a golden calf and bowing down to it and saying, this is the God who took us out of Egypt when they've just been redeemed by, from slavery and saying, no, we want to actually go back there because we were treated better by our slave master than we are by this God. They couldn't have done any worse to God. And what do they receive from it? Mercy. Undeserved mercy. Grace. Right? And so, as the time comes, Moses is waiting to hear the words that most reveal what God is at his center. And he says, merciful. Merciful. And gracious. And those two things signify much the same. But mercy, of course, has to do with staying wrath and justice. That's what they deserve, but God shows mercy. And he'd already determined to wipe them out, but no, he shows mercy. And then grace is, is going beyond that and bestowing undeserved favor upon these undeserving people. He is granting favors and privileges well beyond any right to even ask for these things on these undeserving people. He is merciful and he is gracious. Furthermore, he's long-suffering, Right? He's not quick to anger. Let's, let's be clear about that. If he were quick to anger, they would all be gone right now. But he's not. He's long-suffering. He's exactly what Moses and the people had already experienced in God. He is very, very patient. And long-suffering is a better word to say it. Patient has to do with, with we who are creatures, we who are servants. If we have to wait for something, we're waiting in line somewhere, that's maybe that's an element of being patient. And Christians ought to be patient. But God is more than patient, you see. He's not waiting for something. He's the one who can do anything at any time to to anyone. And rather, he is long-suffering to people who don't deserve uh, for him to continue to dwell with them. But rather, they deserve to be wiped out. He is long-suffering. And that's not the end. Abounding in goodness and truth. Now, people have different things of which they uh, might be proud of or might want to let people know. Uh, Some people have more of this and some people have more of that. In this world, people want to let you know if they have lots of money. In various ways, whether subtle or, or maybe overt, people demonstrate if they have lots of money. Other people demonstrate if they have lots of education and learning. Other people demonstrate if they have lots of skill in various ways or maybe they have whatever it might be, lots of beauty. Our God abounds in goodness and truth. Again, if Satan comes, and he always does, and I don't think this, I don't, I'll, I'm not a prophet, nor a son of a prophet, but this week will not be out before Satan in some way or another calls into question the goodness of God in your life. You're going to be wondering, is God really good? And I want you to know he's revealed his name and he's telling you that he abounds in goodness. He doesn't just have it a little bit. He's not just kind of good like you are a little bit. Sometimes he is abounding in such goodness and also truth. As Satan speaks his lies, you remember he's a liar and the father of all lies. But our God abounds in truth and he gives these truth, true things. He speaks these things. He's constantly communicating to us the truth whether we listen or not. 
And then he goes on to explain in verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands. That's speaking not just of thousands of people, and there were hundreds of thousands, millions, but thousands of generations in this context, as we've already seen. Thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. And that thousands of generations just means forever. All right? If you think about a generation, whether you're speaking of something like 20 years or 40 years, however you might define a generation, thousands of generations is from the, the, the start of things to the end of things, God is going to be merciful to his own covenant people. He's keeping mercy for these thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing. All right? and it goes on to say the guilty, but actually what it means is clearing in general, meaning just sweeping things under the carpet. By no means is he sweeping things under the carpet. He's not healing our wounds slightly when he forgives our sin and iniquity. He's not just, he's not just um, what, uh, what we'd say in the military, pencil whipping, meaning that something difficult had to be done in some training log, but someone just writes it off as if it's been done, but it hasn't been. God's not like that. He's just. He's, he's righteous. He's holy. He could never do a thing like that. And so his forgiveness comes at his own cost. And he pays it on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? All that wrath that he was going to, to pour out on, on the people, that wiping the people out in his wrath, in which he says, Moses, leave me alone, that I just, just my wrath will come and destroy and consume these people, that fell on the head of his own beloved son. And let's not ever forget that. That his mercy is not the kind of facile mercy and of, of someone in this world who uh, is not just and is, is tolerant in the wrong sort of ways and just kind of waves her hands and say it doesn't matter, that is not our God, but rather he pays the highest possible price, the shed blood of Christ, which we will remember in God's sovereign um, providence tonight. You remember as you have that cup before you, this is the price, the shed blood of Christ. This is the price for which your sin has been forgiven. By no means clearing... Visiting the iniquity of their fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, as I say, this is the way that it often works in this life. And that those, for instance, uh, let's take the example of the curse of divorce. The world says divorce is easy and fun and inconvenient. The reality is it is destructive to children and even to children's children. And that is a sad reality, that it is a generational difficulty that is not easy to overcome. So there is a reality in some sense that sins do happen in God's universe that in various ways are visited upon children and grandchildren. But this is not, but actually the core of all this, of how it is that the sin, the penalty for sin is visited, he doesn't visit it upon your children, he visits it upon his own child, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I want to say that both of these things are true of this statement. That there is a reality that in the, with regard to the things that happen in, in this life, there is no way for children to avoid, uh, in, in some sense, difficulties because of the sins of their parents and grandparents. It happens. However, when the reality and the core of these things are, contained, or are considered, the one that actually pays the price for your sin is not your grandchild, but of God's Son. Don't forget that. So that's his name. Um, that, there's, that, that's it. Okay, that's his name. 
And if the Lord wanted something else to be known about his essential character, he could have said it, but he didn't. And all I see in there is incredible mercy and grace towards his own covenant people. Amazing. Now, his response, Moses' response to that, what would you do? I hope the inclination in your heart would be to do exactly what Moses did in verse 8, which is Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. When you encounter the living God, that is what you do. And I hope that that is what is in your heart as you encounter the truth of your God, that that is exactly what you want to do. Because that is right. And then he asked for something else. Because he's Moses. And he's already been granted these supreme favors. He's just learned of, the, of the, the name of God. And so far from being chided or rebuked or proven wrong thus far. And that Moses, and, and that Moses and, and said the Lord said, proclaims his name and somehow explains that he's the sort of God that only, you only get three wishes and then you're done or something like that. Actually only reinforces Moses' impression that he is a good God abounding in goodness. Who gives and grace and mercy are just flowing from him. Reinforcing all that he already knew of God. Well he does the other rational thing. Once he's done bowing down and worshipping this God. Which is the first thing we should do. Which is why in our acrostic for prayer we start with adoration. Right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Having done at least that first part. He asked for something else. Verse 9. And he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. We. Notice the change here. That's not the way that Moses had spoken about the people before. He said they're a stiff-necked people. God had said the same Aaron had said, you know these people, you know these people, that they're set on evil. He doesn't say, you know the way I am, that I'm bent on evil too. But now Moses owns these people as his own and confesses that he is part of them and he himself is likewise guilty in various ways. He says, we are a stiff-necked people. And he says, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Because he, the moment has come again where God says, I do these things. That I forgive, I'm merciful and gracious and I keep mercy for thousands and I forgive iniquity and transgression of sin. It is almost an invitation. It's almost, it's a red carpet being laid out once again before Moses' feet to say, if there's anything left to ask for on behalf of this people, now is the time to do it. And so he does. He looks at the people and each figure, and even between yesterday and today, last time he asked God to forgive, they've already committed more sin. You can be certain of it. He turns his, his, his back for a moment and they've made a golden calf. You can be certain these people who are stiff-necked and bent on evil have, have sinned already. And so he says, if, you, if I have found grace in your sight, go among us, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And that's new language. We haven't seen that exactly that way before. Take us as your inheritance. Now God is rich beyond imagination. And he's already offered to Moses lately to wipe out the people and make a new one of Moses. 
just like he did with Noah. And he says, no, I want you to take this people as your inheritance. And friends, that's what happened, right? The good news, and here's where we turn to application, the good news is that God said yes one more time, right? He did go with that people. He did forgive their iniquity, and he did take them as their inheritance. And beloved, that means you and I. All the seed of Abraham, all the, inher- all the people, the, the inheritors of those covenant promises today, that is you and I, and God, God said yes to Moses. He didn't deny him, didn't chide him, didn't rebuke him. He, Moses simply took up once again the amazing offer before him of the name of God, of his essential mercy and grace, his willingness to forgive and to give things just because he's found grace in his sight. And he takes the opportunity to say, take, we are a stiff-necked people. Live among us even still. And so he did. He sent his son to live among a stiff-necked people. And all you have to do is read the Gospels to see how true that is. And day by day, the Lord Jesus suffered among such a stiff-necked people. But he did it anyways. Because God heard Abraham. And God heard Moses. And God heard David and all the favorites of heaven and the mediators and the types of Christ and all of the prayers of God's people, he heard them and he answered. And so he went among us, he remains among us. Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in your midst. And he is with us. And friends, I want us to understand that we are also a stiff necked people. I hope you don't think that we're much better than the people in Old Testament Israel. We're not. We praise God for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We praise God for the whole counsel of God that are given it to us in the canon of the completed scripture. And therefore, we have to be a little bit better, but not much. And certainly not due to anything having to do with ourselves inherently. We're likewise not so quick to turn away from our sins. We're likewise like to rebel against God as soon as anyone's back is turned. But God is good. He answered those prayers. And God said yes. So what should we do? We should secondly worship as we consider the name of God that is given to us. Um, I don't know exactly what we were thinking about the revelation of God, the self-revelation of God, what he would show. But the things that he chose particularly to portray to his own covenant people, and you understand That it's a little different for those who are in unrepentant rebellion against God and want no part of Christ and his gospel, don't want his mercy. Of course, they're, they're going to receive his justice. But what he displays to us is just mercy and grace and goodness, kindness and willingness to forgive, long suffering. And we ought to worship. This should fuel our worship. It it, it should be not at all the kind of worship that is paid to a distant and to an exacting deity. There are those who think that God is a hard man extracting things uh, from people that they're unable to give. But believers know that's not true. And we should do what Moses did and worship him in his goodness and mercy and grace. Thirdly, I want to ask that question again. Are you a favorite of heaven? Are you? There are some 
who, like Moses, knew that he was. He says, he keeps saying, if I found favor in your sight, because he knew that he had found favor in his sight. He knows what that looks like as he's before a sovereign. He knows what the favorites of Pharaoh looked like and what they received. And they just kept asking and they just kept getting. And there have been those in church history who knew they were favorites of heaven. And they just kept asking. And they just kept getting they live joyful, wonderful, fruitful, productive lives. And you can read about them in all kinds of Christian biographies. I hope that you do. And I want to ask you, what's the difference between you and them? The difference is simple. They know it. They're aware of it. How about you? Because the difference is not what willing, God is willing to grant. He's already, made his, he's already sent his son to suffer and die on your behalf. So clearly, it's not a matter of the cost to be born. It has to do with your subjective reception of the totality of his goodness and mercy and grace. That's the issue. How much do you want to take up the invitation? Do you, do you grasp at any scrap of invitation or any slight encouragement that you have to God to come and to ask in boldness and faith and to receive with open hands all of his spiritual goodness? Or is it otherwise with us? Let's see, you know, there's so many useful things to be found in Pilgrim's Progress and also in its um, second part. But I think of the situation of, of Little Faith. Some of you know about Little Faith. What was his problem, children? Little Faith's problem. Was it that God wasn't good? No, it's that he didn't know that God was so good. Is his own subjective reception of these things. He wasn't conscious of his privilege. He kept forgetting about these things, neglecting these things, and acting as if God were not as good and powerful as he was. And so therefore, all the things that were available to great heart, all the things that are available to Christian, were available to him. But he just didn't decide to take them up. Because he was cowardly, and he was small-minded in his work. Not willing to be as bold as Moses was in those things. Beloved, we don't have to live like refugees in this world. All right? There are spiritual there are people who live like spiritual refugees in this world because they're like little faith and they're not willing to open up and to grasp with both hands the goodness of God. Don't live like that. You don't have to. Fourthly, praise God, we will see him as he is. No man who is alive, no man who is a sinner, can see God in his full glory and live. That's, That's the problem. The revelation of such a holy God is unbearable. Just like some weak little plant, it's, uh, if the full light of the sun to come to bear on some weak little plant in the equator and the noonday sun, it dies. All right? That's the way that God's uh, pure glory is to a sinner. But it's not going to be like that in heaven. No, of course not. We, we get to see God precisely as he is. That's the, the promise that is said in 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. That's the idea. What he's bestowed, he just gives it to us. That we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we now are children of God. It has not been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right? In fact, the logic goes the other way. Uh, we're going to become, we'll be just like him. And the reason is because we're going to see him as he is. 
You understand that we are transformed from, uh, by, by the, 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 the full, un, un, uh, unqualified and complete revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he is the image of the living God, so as we behold his image without anything in between us, we become precisely like him. Right? And that's the beautiful, glorious transformation in, uh, as, in the second coming of Christ. Beautiful transformation for all of God's people. And we'll see him. Job knew that. Job said, I, will, I, will, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him in my flesh. I will see him. And so it will be for us. And I hope that we're like Moses. I hope our desire is to see God. What else is there? What else great desire? We want to sometimes, people want to see great people in this world or great places. How much more so to see the one true and living God? But friends, that is granted to you. Soon enough, that will be the case. You know, I, again, I don't, um, I don't always quote Lewis as a theologian, but this is um, a really good one. Um, I, I mentioned at the end of the silver chair, there's Prince Caspian. Well, King Caspian, he was an old man. He dies. He's brought to life through what? The blood of Christ. Lewis, for once, gets it right. The blood of Christ actually imparts life to the dead. And he arises, and he's a young man. And he says, I, I want to see, I've always wanted to see a glimpse of their world, meaning our world. And, and he said, is, is that wrong? And Aslan responds and says, it's not possible for you to want wrong. You can't want wrong things now. And that's the reality of us in heaven. And our desire even now to want to see God, that's not wrong. That's why Moses was not rebuked. And we shall see him. Not just a bit of him, not just the hind part, not just a side. We shall see him, and that's not wrong. And that is the privilege that is granted to the favorites of heaven, chosen from eternity. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, truly, Lord, you are good beyond our imagination. We are mean. We are miserly. Lord, we would restrain and restrict, and we would say no to ourselves and to others. And that, therefore, we come to you as if you were like us. But, Lord, you're not like us. You're not sinful like we are, and you're not miserly like we are either. We pray, Lord, therefore, that our, our minds and our hearts would be enlarged to receive the truth of God the way you really are. The way Moses needed to find out about the truth of God, his essential character, his name, that was proclaimed before him by the living God himself. Lord, what is there is amazing. It does not bring fright to sinners, but comfort. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not live as spiritual refugees, as little faiths, but, Lord, as great faith, as great heart, bold and courageous, desirous, to receive every invitation and every privilege that you have for us. And we pray that you'd grant us more and more in the day of your granting good things to your favorites. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come now to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Of course, this sacrament is for believers. We're reminded uh, even of the distinction between the once and for all initiation into the Christian faith and baptism, which is passive, 
as water is applied to someone and they receive it passively. But with regard to the Lord's Supper, it is inherently active. Unlike the Roman Catholics who also try to make it into something passive, you know, and uh, put, dip away from and put it in someone's mouth, you take out your hand and receive both the, the bread and the cup. And therefore, you're, you're telling to the world that you really are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was for believers, and the, the, it is for believers, and the Bible does warn us to examine ourselves before coming to the table, that only believers in the Lord Jesus should take this sacrament, and then only those who are not in any open and defiant sin. It's for that reason that the elders on the one hand guard the table from those who may not be able to rightly discern the Lord's body, and on the other are concerned that believers should not be excluded of those things. It's also for church members, because as we come and partake of this one bread, this one loaf, we're demonstrating that we're at union with one another in the church. And so as believers are part of the invisible and universal kingdom of God, so also all believers must be also members of some local church. So if you're able to speak of your faith in Christ, of your trust that he died in your place, and if you're members of another congregation, then please come. Likewise, those believers who are, for the moment, in some exceptional situation regarding membership but have received permission from the elders, you're also welcome to come. Here now the words of institution of this sacrament as spoken by our Lord and given to the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Let's pray. Truly, Lord, even as the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the eternal Son of God made man, gave thanks for the elements of his supper, so, Lord, we give you thanks for these elements this ordinary bread and this ordinary wine set apart now for their extraordinary use in the Lord's Supper. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you bless our reception of these things to our spiritual and eternal benefit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.